I'm Malcolm Maiden. Welcome to the Yarra Exchange, a podcast covering what's happening in the markets and the world of business generally, brought to you by Yarra Capital Management. My first guest is Tim Tui, someone whose insights I've been tapping for decades. Tim is Head of Macro and Strategy at Yarra. He joined in September last year and before that was Chief Economist of Elliston Capital's global macro team. For 15 years before that, until 2016, he was Chief Economist and Head of Macro Strategy for Australia and New Zealand at Goldman Sachs. He's a very smart guy and we cover a lot of ground in the exchange, including the outlook for global markets and what he's expecting will come from the US election this year. We also get Tim's take on the GFC and the work that central banks have done to try and reverse it. And importantly, we cover the impacts of the devastating Australian bushfires, including what it means for both the Australian economy and policymakers. I hope you enjoy the discussion. If you do, we'd love you to hit the subscribe button and share it with your colleagues, friends and family. Now, Tim, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks, Mel. Pleasure to be here. You might have noticed uh, when I described what Tim has done here and in other places before that the word macro turns up in each of his roles. It's a little bit like alpha for me. It means different things to different people and in different contexts. So what is the macro that you do, Tim? Well, macro is the most interesting part of investing. I guess I would say that, but it's the bigger picture. It's the top down. I think it's the recognition that turning points in growth and inflation can have dramatic impacts on financial asset pricing. But I'm not surprised by that there's an element of confusion because even for me, it's a pretty broad job description. In some ways, it's deployment of pretty sophisticated data interrogation, trying to torture the data to, it tells you the truth to some degree. To some degree, it's really the identification of broader trends that you think are going to be the next big investment trend. And it's also the assessment of geopolitical events or policy pronouncements, which are far more subjective in nature. So it is broad ranging. But at the end of the day, it's really just taking as much information as possible and trying to distill a complex world into something that's a pretty simple narrative that you can have some confidence investing around. Well, this is a bottom-up investment house. Is there any clash between having what is essentially a top-down view of yours in a bottom-up house, or do you think it actually dovetails well? No, I think it dovetails very well because when you're really in the detail of bottom-up analysis, you are lost almost in the detail of that individual company or the companies that you're, that you're investigating. And what you will miss at times is when those really tectonic shifts in the global landscape mm. are shifting. So in some ways, part of my role is to provide some insurance that we can see those shifts happening in real time and adjust the portfolios progressively. Mm-hmm. During your time with Goldman Sachs, you were named Australia's number one economist in the Greenwich Associates Survey for 13 consecutive years between 2003 and 2016, which is pretty amazing. Greenwich rates the best analysts in various fields. It does this worldwide as part of its offering of research into the markets and its participants for clients. Now, there are awards and awards. I know this very well. I've handed a few out in my career in uh, the media. Some of them are very narrowly drawn. Basically, they're the opinion of whoever it is who's handing the gong out. The Greenwich Awards are different, aren't they? Yeah, Mel, look, I don't profess to be an expert on the methodology of all the independent research polling services, but as you say, they do go about the task very differently. But in terms of which ones are a very long-running survey, which has a genuine global footprint, as you alluded to, 
which ones go about surveying all the major fund managers out there. And I think on last count that I looked at, at least, Greenwich was surveying over 90 of the institutional managers. That's here. Here. That's yep. just domestically. So I don't think you can really find something comparable. It's also a survey that I believe they do about 80% of their surveys face-to-face, which I think goes to the quality aspect of the survey. And in my time at Goldman's, which was around 15 years, their results did correlate very closely with Goldman's one-on-one polling of the, of the clients as well. So I think it is of high quality and we do respect it. All right, we should take a helicopter view of the markets first. And we've got key ones, including share markets here and in the United States at new highs in the new year. The short sellers even better retreat from Elon Musk's Tesla group. Heady staff, although January is often bullish. How are you seeing the global outlook and do you think the markets are accurately pricing it? I can't help thinking of the record highs in 2007 ahead of the GFC crisis when I asked that question, by the way. And they were highs in 2007 that were set even as fixed interest spreads were widening. The debt markets saw it coming before the share markets did. Yeah, well, I'd be surprised if the debt market participants weren't pessimistic. You know, they are paid to be pessimistic. They do tend to see it first. You know, inviting a group of bond managers to your next dinner party won't be the most entertaining of evenings for you. So there's definitely truth in the statement that bond markets see the downside first and equity markets tend to see it first on the way out. And I would argue that they have been seeing it on the way out since the um, third quarter of last year. So while there's definitely a role for investment markets for that pessimism at times, um, there's also a role for those that are looking for the hope phase of the cycle, the investment phase. And that's what we're actually at at the moment. There is capacity for the US to grow into what is an elevated price earnings ratio at the moment. And there's capacity for emerging markets and Asia in particular to grow off a relatively low base in terms of the economic cycle. So we're actually actually pretty optimistic about what can transition through 2020, but most of the alpha in 2020 will come via sector rotation rather than calling the equity market necessarily much higher. The US, of course, is still the market that uh, everybody looks to for guidance and it's an election year over there. Tuesday, November 3 is a big day here too, by the way. November 3 is Melbourne Cup Day and the Reserve Bank will be meeting to consider rates. How is the election race in the US shaping up? And for the markets, how much do you think it's going to matter? What results present the most market risk? So the result for the US election this year is, is going to be crucial. Typically, in the election year, equity markets tend to go up in election year and tend to struggle the following year. This year, the big question is going to be which of the Democratic candidates actually get up. Biden, which is still, I think, the most likely candidate versus Trump, would still likely be a positive outcome for equity markets. A Warren outcome or a Bernie Sanders outcome, I think equity markets will stumble as soon as that becomes the more likely outcome for the Democratic candidate. The policies that they're presenting currently are unlikely to be the actual policies that would get implemented should they actually win the election. So markets will need to digest that separately. But nevertheless, Warren's policies as they currently stand would turn an EPS consensus forecast of about plus six for the US in terms of EPS growth into about a negative seven. So that would be a big deal. She says she's a capitalist. She does. Her policies suggest otherwise. But as you say, doability is part of it. She would quite possibly have a hostile Congress. Yeah, I think that is a very important point. I mean, what 
is proposed versus what actually then becomes proposed in the legislature versus what gets through a very, very big stepping points. So working markets weren't completely derate on the outcome, but they certainly have to reassess. Now, the global financial crisis in 2008 and 2009 was a political shock as well as a financial and economic one. And as its impact persists, it's being argued now by some people that the political effect might turn out to be the biggest, that the world's sudden arrival in 2008 at the edge of a precipice that very few experts the year before even knew existed has generated a loss of faith and trust in institutions and governance at all levels of society. And in doing so, it's reshaping the world, for example, by propelling populist non-politicians to power with all the attendant risks. What do you think? I completely agree with that one. There are echoes of history here. The longer the period where large swathes of the population feel like they're missing out, the greater the probability they embrace an idea that appeals to self-interest, to fear, to declining trust. And I guess some politicians are evidently very adept at exploiting that. And it's mixing in the current era with developments in technology. That means it's morphing to something else that's far more powerful, far harder to stop. I guess the irony is that the ideas and the opinions being spread are vastly, and those that want to shout out fake news are the ones that are actually seeking to exploit this trend the most. So I guess as guardians of those that are fact-based reporting, I guess this is probably closer to your heart, Mel, than mine, but um, I find it pretty difficult to, to stand in opposition to that. But from a, an economist's point of view, this is actually quite important, I think. I don't think it's an exaggeration that if you get an unexpected global downturn at the moment, it would actually only exacerbate the trend. So when you look to why monetary policy is so stimulatory, why we're seeing the tilt towards fiscal expansion, and why you're seeing serious people having serious conversations about new modern monetary theory, it's part of the reason for the fear that what happens if a downturn happens before the rest of the population feel like they're getting some benefit out of this recovery. Speaking of institutions and trust, let's talk a little bit about the central banks. President Trump openly criticised the US Federal Reserve and its chairman, Jerome J. Powell, for rate rises in 2018. And in 2019, the Fed reversed course and cut rates, snapping a market sell-off and reigniting the bull market. President Trump was still not happy, however. Last August, he reacted to Powell's comment that trade policy disputes were affecting global growth by tweeting, my only question is, who is our bigger enemy, Jay Powell or Chairman Xi? That's Xi Jinping. Has the leader of the world's most important central bank been successfully bullied by the leader of the world's most important country? And where does it go from here, if so? Yeah, the US president's uniquely attuned at finding a target that, I guess, meets his political objectives and a target that can't effectively fight back. And I think let's remember that, first of all, it was Trump who removed a quite an effective Fed chair in Janet Yellen, and that Jay Powell was Trump's pick that he vetted. I think Powell started off relatively effectively. He articulated the strategy for why rates were going to rise. And broadly, I think he got the timing and magnitude somewhat right. The last hike at the end of 18 was more fraught. There's no question about that, particularly as evidence that Europe was slowing and China was slowing and stuff was already in the data. So the tightening phase was close to being complete anyway. Trump effectively then front run. And he was aggressive in his target. He's aggressive in the way he harassed and harangued. But he was also aggressive, I think, in terms of what he was doing on the trade front, which was causing the damage. So did Trump cause 
the Fed to ease? He did. Partly it was the, trying, the Fed trying to mitigate the damage that Trump was doing to the institution, but mostly it was Trump's policies around trade that actually drove the Fed into a position where they were forced to ease. Trump probably thinks that the guy who appointed Powell should be fired. No, wait, he appointed Powell. <laughs> Correct. And if anyone caught his uh, press conference around the signing of phase one of the trade deal, one of the people that was proposed to have Powell's job was in the room and uh, Trump declared that he would be much happier if he had the job rather than Jay Powell. All right, but the central banks don't have uh, as much in their locker as they used to have, do they, with interest rates so low? Central banks took borrowing costs to the mat with rate cuts and quantitative easing during the GFC, and after some hesitant reversals, rates were pushed lower again around the world last year. Very low interest rates, the so-called discount rate effect, have been a dominant factor in market valuations since the global crisis, with fixed interest coupons approaching zero in European markets actually going below it, anything that offers positive yield is going to be in demand and is. Do you think investors underestimated how long-term the effects of the GFC would be? And did the central banks underestimate it too? And what ends this era of low interest rates? And how likely is it? Yeah, it's a good question. There's, there's no question that debt um, deleveraging cycles take a long time. And I think even when it was identified that we we're in the middle of a debt deleveraging cycle, it was still being underestimated um, how long it would take for us to get to the other side of it. And part of that was probably because they wanted to shore up expectations, even those that may have thought otherwise. But I think given the, the depth of the fiscal stimulus and the depth of the monetary stimulus, there was a belief that that would be sufficient to pull the economies out the other side. We are, I think, as you rightly pointed out, still feeling the after effects of it. But what actually happened in the aftermath of the financial crisis, we did a couple of things that were also worked against us. One, we were doing enormous fiscal drag as we tried to repair the government's balance sheet. So that somewhat elongated, if you like, the deleveraging cycle. Did we have to do that? There was a debate at the time about whether or not you needed to crush the fiscal side at the same time. Yeah, I think it was far too aggressive, particularly in parts of Europe. I think that was the Goldman view over in the States at the time as well, wasn't it? Yeah, that's true. The view out of the US and more broadly, I think, was that what other countries were doing were far too aggressive for what was in the best interest of, of the general population. The other thing that happened, though, is that where best guesses of where the neutral interest rates were just fell dramatically. And part of this was demographics. So you had the unfortunate coincidence that of a major financial shock, a dramatic deleveraging cycle, coalescing with a big shift in the demographics, which led to where you needed to see interest rates happened to be a lot lower than where you thought you needed to set them in order to get growth up towards trend. And in essence, that became one of the bigger surprises over the last even five to six years, let alone even looking back the full um, 11 years since the crisis. By the shift in demographics, do you mean the baby boomers starting to shuffle off the chart? Yeah, it's definitely related to that. It's the set down in productivity as well. So when trying to calibrate where you need to put interest rates over the medium term, it's if those things are starting to move unbeknownst to you while you're trying to set policy in real time, it becomes highly problematic. So they had to learn by doing effectively. And by learning by doing, they only realised quite late in the piece that we needed rates significantly lower and would have been helpful, of course, if fiscal policy was a little bit more expansive as well. 
just quickly because I know we need to move on. I've spent almost my entire life in an environment where people were worried about inflation and everybody was basically talking about how to restrain it and control it and target it. Are we still in a situation now where deflation is the real risk? Yeah, that's, that is the most important question, Mel, I think at the moment. The general belief, and you can see this by the bond markets are trading, is that they believe that inflation really isn't a, an imminent risk, not just for this year, but for the medium term. And it's a time where a lot of the major economies are well below where we would consider their unemployment rates are well below where we consider to be full capacity. We can see that broader measures of capacity have been pretty quickly eroded as well. You can now buy and trade very, very long-dated debt priced at nothing. Yeah, and I can point to economic series that are suggesting that US wages are going to accelerate quite significantly over the next 12 to 18 months. Small business sector in particular in the US, the, the sector that employs everyone, is giving quite a dramatic signal at the moment that wages are set to pick up. If the global recovery happens to coalesce with a shortage in base metals like copper or nickel, potentially iron ore, potentially even oil, you could actually get a commodity shock. It would radically transform the way that people would be thinking about those inflation risks. How likely is it? It's certainly not best case. Should it be priced more aggressively than what the bond market has? Absolutely it should. Although after the GFC, the commodity price cycle continued on for at least three years, I think. The peaks for iron ore, I think, were 2010, 2011. Yeah. Dramatic so Chinese we had stimulus. major commodity price inflation at a time when inflation overall was trending down and yeah. rates, rates were super, super low. So. That's right. The difference is that time is, yes, you had dramatic fiscal stimulus from China, which helped transform the commodity complex to some degree. But what also was occurred is you also had dramatic excess capacity in the global production chain. So even though China was stimulating, even though that was good for commodities, you were still in an environment where it's very hard to get tension in the product market to generate inflation. And that's really the difference this time around. Is the Reserve Bank on the path to quantitative easing? And by the way, I call QE indirect downward pressure on rates through the injection of cash into economies by various means. I'm sure you've got a better description, Tim. Anyway, has our Reserve Bank Chairman Philip Lowe signalled clearly enough what would actually prompt QE here and what form it would take? And the alternative, I guess, is that we don't get QE and we see the long-awaited economic recovery here in 2020 and elsewhere. Can stronger prices in housing, for example, here help all that much if income growth is still weak? What about corporate investment? It's been missing in action, hasn't it? Yeah, there's a lot there, Mel. Look, I guess, first of all, in terms of quantitative easing, I think um, Phil Lowe was very clear that the path to quantitative easing wasn't a straight line. He called it essentially a non-linear transformation that yes, we have the capacity to ease another couple of times, but the hurdle for us to move to QE is very large. I think they're saving that card for the next downturn rather than for this current cycle. And in essence, we don't think it's necessary. We do think that they will cut in the relatively near term, but we think it's more likely than not that'll be the last. If we're right on the global view, if we're right on the Asia view, and we're right on that, as you rightly point out, the movement in house prices is not insignificant. We can see the movement in finance as well. So credit is, is evolving through the economy as well. There is something of a turn in retail, although that's going to be heavily challenged into what looked like a reasonably soft Christmas and the, and the bushfire effect. But looking beyond that, where we can see still strong employment growth, fiscal 
moving towards a more constructive environment. Another rate cut, coalescing with the last three, gives you a pretty dramatic cash flow impact on household income, even if wages aren't picking up. But more importantly, it's really that external signal. We're seeing a rise in confidence and a fall in global uncertainty. I think that does give a certain impetus to the economy getting some recovery. Housing, new housing construction looks to us as though it's going to turn sooner and much faster than the consensus expects. Yes, as we prepared for this podcast in Yarra's Melbourne headquarters in Collins Street, Melbourne, smoke was enveloping the CBD. It's been an awful start to the summer. And in the economy itself, I guess there's going to be an impact on growth, fiscal policy and monetary policy. Governments and central banks try to look through shorter-term swings and focus on long-term trends. But tourism and anything that benefits from it, including the retail sector, are being hit. And more generally, it feels to me like it's a game changer and not just here potentially given the amount of coverage that these bushfires got overseas. For the government, as I said, there's a budget impact, but it's not just the Australian government and the central bank and other groups like that that have to consider the extent to which this horror season is part of a long-term global warming trend, is it? As we talk now, the Bank of International Settlements has just put out or published a long paper talking about managing the risk of climate change, and that talks about green swan events, which it says could be even more devastating than the so-called black swan events in the market, such as the global crisis. And the world's biggest investor, BlackRock in the United States, has just announced that it's cutting coal investment as part of a resetting of its $7 trillion US dollar portfolio to focus on sustainability, including action to battle climate change. So... What do you think about the bushfires and their impact and how do you see the reaction to that playing out? Yeah, I think uh, most economists can sit there and, and, and make an estimate pretty quickly about what they think the direct economic impact is and 0.3 to 0.4 year average impact off growth is not unreasonable. And taken pretty quickly, I think. That's right. We'll be all in the first part of the year. The more complex element about it, and I think you're right to point out two aspects about it. One is that we were looking out the window and so the smoke was over large metropolitan areas for extended periods of time. That's never happened before. And the global coverage that was, and still <laughs> is occurring, is unprecedented. So it's hit on facets that we probably can't directly pull into the models and frameworks that economists have used in the past to gauge the impact. The tourism impact could be much bigger, the political shift that has already happened and will likely be required appears ongoing and I think probably unlikely to be weighted out by politicians. I think this is a wake-up call that the general population now expects their political leaders to lead. So it is a big deal. In terms of the BlackRock effect, I'm more of a believer what that is going to do is see the ownership of assets that may be difficult to hold in private hands or listed equity hands, move into private hands. So yes, thermal coal assets will be unpopular to be held in a liquid equity portfolio, but they still contribute about $26 billion of exports to this economy. They're still highly cash flow generative. So you'll see them move out of a BlackRock portfolio into private hands. So the next private equity private, space perhaps? Well, private, private offices, private equity, offshore investors. It's just be increasingly difficult for mums and dads sitting there putting their hands up at an AGM saying, why is this in my listed investment portfolio? The Bank of International Settlements publication 
is quite interesting. It talks quite dramatically about climate change and the prospect of climate change producing a financial disaster if we don't sort of manage our pricing of the risk of that disaster carefully. But it also says that the past is absolutely no guide to pricing the future risk. This is something entirely new and by implication, nobody's really worked out how to price the risk of climate change yet. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. If we're talking about an event that hasn't happened before, then we can't go back and, and run our um, cross-correlation analysis across asset classes and figure out how we should appropriately price these risks. But that's the definition of a black swan event, isn't it? I think one of the definitions, it's something that's only understood after it's happened. Correct. But I think the interesting aspect about it is you're talking about this as an event. It's had some news coverage. Financial markets are trying to figure out how we absorb what we can see at the moment. There is price movement occurring for securities to try and embrace at the margin. There will be a bigger push for the, when we look at the way the analysts do their analysis for the ESG component to have a higher component to it. And within that ESG, the, the E, the environment, will, will get a much bigger run than what it's had in the past. Um, most of the ESG has been about governance issues rather than environmental or social impacts. So, yeah, increasingly, I think the movement towards aggregation of assets to pension funds, which have more power to exert some of these more social issues, environmental issues, will coalesce to companies actually doing something and, indeed, politicians doing something about it. So given all that we've uh, talked about so far, what should investors be looking at in 2020. How does this compare with 2018 and 19, a long-term trend, by the way? Well, 2018, 19 was you know, obviously a great period for equity markets, but as you pointed out earlier on, it was a lot of it had to do with the discount effect. You know, bonds rallying aggressively, bond yields going down dramatically, particularly in Q3 of 2019, saw an enormous uplift in equity valuations and equity prices. The interesting aspect about 2020, if the rest of the world's getting better, that does throw up different questions. That does mean broader-based growth means a more inclusive type of recovery, but it also means the type of things that you have been buying in even your equity portfolio through 2018-19 might need to shift. And equities that were concentrated on getting not a lot of economic sensitivity but had very high growth prospects, you might be tech, you might be thinking here, or pharma is one example, might have to derate somewhat relative to other areas. And that would include not just resources sector, but certainly elements of industrials and, and emerging markets. The broader question, I think, is how long does it persist? You know, can you get a, a recovery that continues well through the course of 2019 with the political dynamic in the background as well? And in particular, what happens if bonds want to do a catch-up phase and bond yields rise to embrace the better growth outlook? That's where I think it's going to be far more interesting come around about the middle part of this year. I think the growth data will come through, we can sustain this rally for a number of months, but eventually bonds will want to do a catch up. And it's that foot race between bonds and equities that will largely determine where the overall index goes, but in the background that rotation within the sectors is going to be quite dramatic, I believe. So the last time I checked, I think the consensus over in the States was that the Fed wouldn't be taking rates up this year. If I hear you right, by about the middle of the year when we actually see the physical economic growth starting to materialise. Maybe they think again about that or are you still confident that it's a... I think... Um, that rates stay down? Yeah, not just that the... It, we've, we've actually got an environment where the major central banks have really strengthened up their forward guidance. 
they're almost committed to not really doing anything at all in 2020, which is the other reason why equity markets are loving this. So you can get better growth without the threat of the liquidity being taken away from you. Indeed, you've even got quantitative easing accelerating again, both in Europe, Japan is doing more, and even the Fed itself. They don't call it QE at the moment, but the same impact is actually occurring. So you've got a very loose financial conditions to start with, even looser, but of what the movement that we're doing in terms of the US dollar liquidity provision by central banks coalescing with better data. That's actually quite a good mix for equity markets until bonds wake up to it. Of course, our Aussie dollar is always in play in, uh, in these things. I always feel that it's a bit of a global growth hostage, a proxy for global demand and commodity prices in particular, rather than for the Australian economy itself which I actually think is one of the most modern and flexible economies in the world. I don't know whether you would agree with me on that. What's the Aussie dollar going to do this year? And is it going to matter? Or at least is it going to matter more than it always does? I know you've been having a particular look at the dollar lately. Yeah, it's a good question, this one, because it's one where I do really disagree with the consensus. The consensus view on the Aussie dollar this year is it goes down. The RBA continues to ease and the Australian dollar will reflect that. Unfortunately, I guess over the last two years, if you're looking just purely at interest rate differentials, which the RBA put in their own models, it correlates negatively. So too does the commodity prices or the terms of trade. It's correlating deeply negatively. So a rise in the terms of trade is, at least empirically at the moment, is showing a fall in the, in the Australian dollar. Now, I don't think that's going to stand itself, and it's a question of why, what's going on there. Well, there's a couple of things going on, but one of the things that's actually been a counterbalance is that Australians are sending a lot more of their allocations of capital offshore. So we've seen this really sharp acceleration in equity portfolio capital exit out of Australia. The question is what happens next? And I think the broader question is, yeah, I'm reasonably upbeat and what can happen with commodity prices at least holding their own levels, if not moving higher. I do believe that broader base recovery outside of the US is occurring. So some of that portfolio allocation or, or rush to push money into the US markets in particular will somewhat normalise or stabilise. And the huge shorting behaviour that we've seen build up over the last two years into the Australian, shorting the Australian dollar, will largely be neutralised. So the broader story is if the deleveraging cycle that we've been seeing in Australia starts to run its course, the global cycle picks up somewhat, the US equity market outperformance starts to come back a little bit relative to the rest of the world, the prospects for the Australian dollar are skewed, I think, significantly to the upside. So a mid-70s against the US dollar by the end of 2020, I think is a more realistic proposition than where the consensus is, which is a little more closer to the mid-60s. That's interesting. So the terms of trade are going up. The dollar is not only not going up with them, in terms of trade being basically commodity prices, export prices and mm. so on. Do you think that the mechanism is still there? The mechanism is still working, but it's just being squashed by these other forces, the movement of money out that's out of the country, for example. Exactly, it's, we've done a, a lot of work with it on this over the last couple of months and that's what the research has been showing very, very clearly. So it is still there and if those other flows back off, it'll reassert. Exactly. Yeah, there's some complexity in it, but that's essentially the message. It's unprecedented the amount of money that we've actually been throwing offshore, reinvesting offshore. And you can think of this as the Magellan effect in some ways. You can think of this as mm. the dramatic underweights that global portfolio managers have had in Australia. Do they want to own the banks? They haven't wanted to own the resources sector through this phase of the cycle. What's the cheapest parts of the Australian equity markets? The resources in the banks. You know, what's the biggest, most liquid parts of the capital pool in the Asia-Pac region that you can invest in? It's the banks and the resources in Australia. So 
if they want to shift the view and you think about it through the prism of unhedged capital flows, <laughs> yeah, the Australian dollar can move and it can move quite a lot on that shift of view. Just coming back to the uh, Reserve Bank briefly, should the Reserve Bank's 2 to 3% target for inflation be changed given that inflation hasn't been 2 to 3% for many, many years now? That's a question that's part of a larger global discussion, I think, in the wake of the crisis and the persistence of low rates everywhere. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think historically I was probably leaning more to the view that the mandate is the mandate and we should stay where it is. But I think increasingly we should be having that conversation. And there's a number of reasons why. I mean, one is that observationally, yeah, we haven't been able to hit the target. We haven't been inside the, um, the, band. the band for in excess of 46 months. And we haven't been in the midpoint of the band for over five years now. So observationally, that's a problem when that is your legislated target. But secondly, the target was framed around the idea of where Australia's speed rate, if you like, or potential growth rate, was thought to be. And that has been recalibrated at least down by half a percent, not only just by the market's view, but by the central bank's view, by Treasury's view. Mm. So how then can you actually hold to us a framework that was built under a world that observationally you could get inflation to oscillate around your target, but secondly, where you thought the economy could grow at. So I think there is a stronger case than we've ever had previously in the last couple of decades or since the inflation targeting era commenced in 94, um, in to actually say, well, maybe it does need to be recalibrated as a one-off basis. Those other central banks that are still inflation targeters, if you think of Canada, you think of the US, you think of the UK, well, they've actually managed to hit their targets at various times over the course of the last five or six years. Well, Tim, thanks very much for that. There's one last question. I'm going to ask everybody that we talk to in these podcasts this. It's often said, expect the unexpected. So what's the biggest unexpected thing in any area you care to nominate that we should at least keep in a corner of our minds so we aren't totally gobsmacked if it happens? I think it's easy to point to certain things that could move markets a bit, but the strongest thing that would move the markets the most, the thing that would be most unexpected, is just a sizable sell-off in bonds. And when you think about our view, a recovery in global growth, the threat that inflation can build, central banks essentially finished with the easing cycle. There's a strong prospect that, that could actually happen in the course of 2020. And the real question is going to be, how do all financial markets respond to that? And I think that's going to be the biggest question, not so much in the first three months of the year, but certainly in the remainder of the year. All right, that's a wrap. Tim, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks, Mel. Pleasure. The Yarra Exchange was brought to you by Yarra Capital Management and hosted by me, Mal Maiden. If you liked what you heard, and we hope that you did, hit the subscribe button and share it. And lastly, the disclaimer. The Yarra Exchange podcast contains general financial product advice only. Before acting on anything in this podcast, you should consider your own objectives, financial situation or needs and seek the advice of an appropriately qualified financial advisor. Any actions based on information within this podcast are strictly at your own risk. Any mention of past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. That's all for now. See you next time.